In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Lent has an image problem. I think it gets a bad rap. I've seen lots of posts online over the last few days saying things like, for Lent, I'm giving up Lent. This whole year has been Lent. Or even a few, for Lent this year, I'm just giving up. This is a very understandable reaction. But only if we think of Lent primarily as 40 days of misery or a season of self-flagellation, in which, in which case we've already had enough of that, thank you very much. But I think there's a better way to frame our understanding of this season. So this morning, I'm going to try and do some PR work for Lent, rehabilitating its image. Admittedly, Lent does have a somber tone. The season is meant to be penitential, a time to reflect on and confess our sins. We started on Ash Wednesday by being reminded that we are all going to die and recognizing our moral frailty. So let's start there with sin and look at how God responds to it. One of God's first responses in the Bible to overwhelming sin comes in Genesis with the flood. In chapter 6, at the beginning of the flood narrative, while God has commanded the people to be fruitful and multiply, the text says that instead there was a multiplication of evil. So God flooded the world, destroying every living thing. Now, this isn't a great start to my reputation makeover for these 40 days in the wilderness, but stick with me. Our readings here on the first Sunday of Lent show us something much more meaningful than knuckling down to get through a month and a half without sweets. Our reading this morning from Genesis was not the flood narrative itself, but what happens afterwards. Noah arrives on dry land, and God makes a covenant with him. Just a few verses prior to our reading, after coming out of the ark, God gives these instructions. Noah and his descendants shouldn't eat animals with their life still in, it, in them, that is, the blood. And then the passage turns towards human blood. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God has made humankind. Now, for those of us seamless garment pro-life folks who oppose both abortion and the death penalty, it's kind of uncomfortable for capital punishment to have this kind of early endorsement. But let me give some caveats. First off, we don't have any record of executions in the Old Testament, so there's a good reason to think that this was never interpreted as a law. But more importantly, in our reading just a verse later, God clarifies his own approach to sin by starting with, as for me. There will be this system of reciprocity when it comes to murder, but God says, as for me, I will not destroy the earth. I've hung up my weapon, my bow in the clouds to show you that isn't how I'm going to be responding to widespread sin. God acknowledges that sin begets sin and vengeance begets vengeance. And Jesus will do the same by saying that those who live by the sword die by the sword. But here in Genesis, God says that ultimately reciprocal destruction is not how he is going to respond to sin. This is the picture of God's heart that we get in the flood narrative. When he looked upon the sin of the world, the author of Genesis writes that everyone's heart was inclined towards evil, and in contrast, God's heart was grieved. When human hearts want evil, God's heart breaks for them. Of course, we know that God doesn't stop punishing sin nine chapters into the biblical narrative, but in Lent, when we are faced with the realities of our sin, we start by remembering God's perspective. John Goldingay writes, the human instinct to seek justice might imperil the world, but the divine commitment to justice will not do so. Human mercy cannot be, be, cannot be presupposed, but divine mercy can be. God establishes this as a covenant, a manifestation of his character. In fact, he, he says it multiple times, and the way that it rolls out, he sort of 
says what he's going to do, and before Noah has a chance to respond, he says it again, perhaps implying that Noah might have had resistance or, but wait, God. But God continues and doubles down on this commitment. And for God to break a covenant would be for him to cease being God. This is who God is, the one who restrains himself from his wrath. And so Lent begins with reminding us of baptism. Baptism, the solution to the disparity between God's holiness and our sin that we encounter when we mark our heads with ash. Not, of course, just the sign. Peter sort of makes this reference. It's not just about washing away dirt. Not the sign, but the thing that baptism signifies, our union with Christ. I think it's helpful to compare baptism to all of these Old Testament events that prefigure it. The flood, like we read in 1 Peter. The exodus, crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. Jonah and the whale. We tend to think about the sea as this lovely place to visit. But for the people who lived during the times of the Old and New Testament, the waters represented stormy chaos. Throughout the Old Testament, God protects his people from the waters, saving them from their fury. But in baptism, we aren't kept from the chaos, but we're plunged into it. Rowan Williams, in his book, Being Christian, says this, I'm inclined to add that you might also expect, expect the baptized Christian to be somewhere near, somewhere in touch with the chaos in his or her own life. Because we, all of us, live not just with the chaos outside ourselves, but with quite a lot of inhumanity and muddle inside of us. A baptized Christian ought to be somebody who is not afraid of looking with honesty at the chaos inside, as well as being where humanity is at risk outside. So why is diving deep into chaos, diving deep into sin, plunging into that reality, good news? How is this going to rehab Lent's image? Well, the ACNA Catechism says this, through faith, repentance, and baptism, I am made a member of Christ, a child of God, and an heir of the kingdom of heaven. Washed of sin and united to Christ, I am justified, being declared righteous by God, and I am given the grace to live continually in repentance and faith. Rowan Williams similarly continues his earlier thought by writing, so baptism means being with Jesus in the depths, in the depths of human need, including the depths of our own selves in their need, but also in the depths of God's love, in the depths where the Spirit is recreating and refreshing human life as God meant it to be. In a season like Lent, where it can seem to be all about self-discipline and self-effort, recalling our baptism reminds us that we don't earn anything. It is God who is at work within us. And he does this work out of an abundance of love for us. Peter connects the baptism, or connects baptism to Noah and the flood, saying that, Baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The appeal here isn't holding up our baptism like a trophy before God, but in baptism being found to be in Christ, receiving the merits of his death and resurrection, and therefore being saved. Paul writes in Romans 6 that those of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ's death, death and that just as Jesus was raised, we are able to walk in newness of life. But again, instead of being kept out of the flood like Noah, in baptism we are plunged into it. Again, Rowan Williams puts this well. The baptized person is not only in the middle of human suffering and muddle, but in the middle of the love and delight of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In baptism we are put in God's delight. And we see that delight of God in Jesus' own baptism. Mark's gospel is notoriously short and terse with its prose, but even here, the details are stunning. The heavens are torn open, like the curtain is torn at Jesus' crucifixion. And in a sense, we get to see behind the curtain, 
Jesus' baptism is like the transfiguration, which Father James talked about last week, where Jesus' true identity is revealed in all of its glory. And like the transfiguration, the voice that calls from heaven identifies Jesus as God's son who is beloved. Now, our baptism is a little bit different. After Pentecost, Paul has to distinguish between those who had only received the baptism of John and those who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet, because we are in Christ and are united to him, our baptism is the same. N.T. Wright explains it. The whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child. I am delighted with you. Baptism is the new creation. Just like God hovered over the chaos in Genesis 1 and created goodness and order out of it, as we unite ourselves to Christ, God descends into the chaos of our lives and creates something new and good. He does this not just in one moment at our baptism, but continually as we repent and revisit the gospel. I'm going to quote Williams again here. I'd highly recommend reading the whole book, Being Christian. But here he says this, When you sin as a baptized person, you are not, as it were, stepping outside of the depths of God's love, unless, of course, you fully and consciously decide to do so. Rather, it is as though you are deliberately ignoring the depths all around you and not letting the reality of the world's need and the reality of God's love come through. So what you need to do is to take the shutters down again. And you will find that every prayer of penitence that you pray is a taking down of the shutters and letting the baptismal depths well up around and within you again. That is what Lent is about, pulling the shutters down and letting God's love come through. Not about morose and dour hatred of ourselves or suffering for suffering's sake, but submerging ourselves, naming the chaos that has overtaken overtaken us, repenting, and finding that God has chosen, freely chosen to step into it and save us. We no longer have to fear the chaos, the sin that ensnares us, the dust to which we shall return. For as we have died in Christ, so we are alive in him in the resurrection. On Ash Wednesday in our collect, when we worthily lament our wretchedness, we do so because we know that God hates nothing that he has made. And the chaos, frankly, is messier than we sometimes acknowledge. It's why we need a whole season to reflect on it. Yes, we must reflect on our individual sins and repent. But since baptism unites us all to one body, the church, it means we are all implicated in each other as well. There is no such thing as a completely individual sin. And so Lent isn't just about itemizing my own personal failures, but reflecting on the sins of the church the ways in which we all participate in vice and fail to embody virtue. On top of that, there are the effects of sin that we can't even diagnose or find their source, but we know them and experience them nonetheless. They're the places where things are broken and we don't even know how they're going to be fixed. Yes, the entire last year has been Lent, if Lent only means suffering. But Lent as a season can be different. If it's the place where we recognize the sin and suffering we have experienced and that we've inflicted, and bring it to Christ with whom we have died and through whom we are brought to new life. So Lent's not a season for hiding or downplaying or looking for easy comfort. We must, like we did in our baptisms, fully allow God to root up all the sin and dirt in our lives and do what only he can do. You'll notice this morning in the prayers of the people that we're again bringing our requests with more specificity, naming our political leaders, 
and the children we sponsor in Kenya who continue to pray for us by name, one of whom is standing up front. I realize those of you who are streaming on a small screen might not quite <laughs> understand what's up there. That's one of our children in Kenya that we sponsor. And we're again praying for the ongoing investigation into our former rector. Now I recognize this is a place that is uncomfortable for some, that to pray for it can feel like a painful place, a reminder of a wound in our community. I don't know about all of you, but I'm tired. It's been over a year since I was asked to step in as priest in charge, and the thing that created this incredible upheaval for our church, and frankly, personally, for our family, has yet to be resolved. I want it all to be over. But that's why it's so important, especially in Lent, for us as a community to name the chaotic thing in our midst, the thing that causes us grief and tension, and hold it up to God, who alone can redeem it, who alone can bring life out of the dust. However uncomfortable or difficult and painful it is for us, we must not hide the wounds that only the great physician can heal. It and all of our traumas must be lifted up in prayer. And since this trauma affects our community, there's no better time for us to pray for it than when we gather as a community to worship the Lord in whose name we have been baptized. So I pray that this Lent, we as individuals and as a church are able to face our sin, individual, corporate, and systemic, the things we have broken, the things that are broken around us, and bury it all with Christ. It was Jesus' baptism that strengthened him to go out into the wilderness for 40, day, 40 days. And so may the reality of our baptism, the thing that unites us to Christ, the thing that unites us to each other, and the reality that God looks at each one of us and sees a beloved daughter or son of God, may that comfort and strengthen us to honestly reflect, repent, and receive healing. May we see the wilderness not as a place of suffering for suffering's sake, but the place where our Savior walks alongside us in our suffering because he's been there before and he'll redeem it all for his glory. Amen.